Hi, my name is Maeve Doyle, and you're listening to A Private View. We had a special guest in over the course of the last couple of weeks. It was Kenny Schachter, the Artnet writer, curator, collector. He has recently been hosting auctions called The Hoarder at Sotheby's, where he's on site. He says there's no reserve. And someone who's become very active on Instagram, Kenny has almost four decades of experience in the art world and is very generous with his time and spirit. So he came in on the 15th of January 2021 and again on the 19th of January 2021. The last time he was in the studio was in 2019 uh, and he was in with his son Kai There will be a tribute to Kai in the middle of the show. We're going to play two segments and play out the tribute to Kai with Kenny's permission and his blessing. Uh, So I hope you enjoy the listening. You always learn something when you listen to Kenny talk. So Kenny's here. He's done the hoarder. He's flown around town. He hasn't been live in the studio since 2019, February, because I've asked. You've done remotes with no, us. No, not 19. Yes, 19. Two years ago. Two years ago. But this year didn't count because it just flew by in some sort of weird state of being. Now, for anyone who's wondering, Kenny's had all of his tests. He's probably had more corona tests than anyone 18. we know. Eight. I have antibodies. 18. And I'm PCR tested. What's PCR tested? There's two different... I've become a corona expert, unfortunately. There's an antigen test, yes. which is the quickest test. Yes. But it's less sensitive yes. than the PCR test. And the PCR test is the one that is definitive. And you're fine, is all I need to know. Well, I'm as fine as I ever was. I'm not sure that's Correct. entirely perfect. I get that. I, I get still that. have no sense of smell. I am so happy to see you, and I've been reading your articles to kind of get some of what we're missing in the art world as it used to happen. And you just did a recent hoarder in New York with your collection. Now, I've got to put this to you like this, because I've known uh of you and about you for a long time. This year, when we weren't in lockdown, I was at the Banksy auction for Show Me the Money. There was like six of us there. And I knew, yeah, it was amazing. And, uh, you know everyone who's in the room. And then everything was online. So there's this idea that things are happening with the art world and galleries that's quite strong. And then the next thing you know, you, who's had a gallery, who's been an artist, who's worked... Not a professional one. Go ahead, carry on. Now you're hosting exhibits, which are also selling spaces without a reserve. So... Technically, you're the only place in an auction house that can get a bargain anymore because you yeah, don't put reserves. Expense, I lost a bloody fortune. Only because my you loss can is your game. To... Did you buy anything from the sale? No, no, I did not. Um, what can I tell you? Because I still like getting gifted. A gift? Oh, there's a quid pro quo. Kenny, let's talk about you and how you've evolved with the art world because I'm guessing that lockdown hasn't stopped you but the art the last time you were here you were talking about the problem with art fairs with the problem with private museums the problem with people like Inio Philbrook where are we at now that everything is online you're mentioning a lot of problems because they're interesting and you make them interesting well in a sense nothing can ever stop the art world the art world I say is like taking a poop 
it's part of human nature, the human inclination to create and to ex people to express themselves differentiates us from other species. We're not exactly where I'm not perfect. I have a lot of problems and the world today is rife with problems, especially like, uh, well, the Corona disease is, has it more of a human toll, a catastrophe of um, taking more lives today in the United States, UK and various other places than ever. And at the same time, nothing could stop art because art is like going to the bathroom and eating and sleeping. It's part of the creative expression of individuality or a collective um, sensibility of what's affecting us or afflicting us is just part of life. So in a sense, I mean, again, like I haven't lost anybody to the to the um, to the disease and I did suffer from it in October and Luckily, knock on, do you have any wood around here? Everything looks pretty formica plastic. But um, nothing will stop me because I have one life to live and I just want to, I've been teaching, I taught all throughout the period that I had COVID. I did a series of uh, online talks. I was teaching at, teaching at the School of Visual Arts and writing, but really art reacts to social, political, and economic phenomena in the world. So the art world there'll be so much extraordinary art that emanates from the unrest politically, socially, health-wise. So probably this has been an incredible period. Last time I was here, I was here, we spoke about, I mean, there was, in the year 2000, there were 50 art fairs. Last year, I mean, the last art fair I, I went to, there were two. One was in February, which was in Los Angeles that I curated a room in with my family and with some various artists that I was interested in. And then there was the armory in March and then everything came to a grinding halt. And again, aside from the human tragedy, which is with us to a greater extent today than ever before, uh, it's been, a, it's almost as if, I mean, I don't believe in fate or determinism per se, but this has been an extraordinary period of people taking stock of what's important and prior, prioritizing family, uh, caring for loved ones, and also art for the sake of art. I mean, I always say that I never get to talk about art because I'm professionally involved in the art world and nobody gives a shit about art. They just want to talk about money, who's showing where, who's showing. You mentioned auctions, and it's all a kind of monetization of creative output, which has been deadening and really kind of awful. So in a sense, this period of contemplation and everyone retreating and taking stock and pulling back uh, during the first three months of quarantine, I was in New York City and I was teaching at School of Visual Arts. I did interviews with artists like from here, like from Jake Chapman and Tracy Emin, which was an extraordinary experience and very touching and revelatory. And at the same time, I mean, yeah, so from every bad um, event that befalls us, there's always good to come from it because humanity, I mean, look, in America right now, it's a shocking period, historically speaking, politically. Everyone is suffering like here economically, although New York is wide open. Other than restaurants, you can still eat outdoors. Galleries are open, uh, museums are open, stores are open. So even though, again, the death toll is the highest it's ever been in the United States, uh, and unfortunately the death toll from political protests, which was absolutely unprecedented, it's all rather shocking, but again, it's just, that's life, you know? I thought it was a meme when I first saw it. I, I mean, thought it was a meme. I saw it on Jake's first, and I'm like, oh, he's found some sort of crazy meme. 
and the then most I ridiculous the news. thing is like it's like a selfie revolution. I mean, these idiots. There's no other way. I mean, I could describe them in other words, but I'm not sure what your censorship issue is with We're okay my dirty here. language. <laughs> We're okay here. It's but the BBC. There we go. I mean, they broke into the. Basically, when the World Trade Center went down, um, there was there were a ton of people jumped out of the World Trade Center from desperation due to the fact that it was a, a, a light on fire and there was no way out. And people just out of pure, utter exasperation jumped. None of that was depicted or represented in the press in America. It wasn't in the newspapers. It wasn't on, on the news, on television. There was no Instagram. Right. So what they didn't show in the Capitol was the extent of the pure violence. I mean, the policeman that died had a fire extinguisher thrown at his skull and that's how he perished. And, but the fact is these knuckleheads were just like taking selfies of themselves in these ludicrous costumes that you just couldn't make up. That's why I have a hard time reading fiction because the things we do to each other is so dreadful. But again, like, I mean, the last time I, I don't know, there's so many different things that are flying through my head. I know. How long are you here for in London? I think, I'll be here till the 25th of January, and I'm working on an exhibition that just got, again, um, uh, postponed. Till it was, I was meant to do an exhibition in Switzerland, a group exhibition with my family and a group of artists that I'm interested in. And that was meant to be in the middle of February, and it's now been moved to the end of March. So I'm probably here. I've been here for near a week, and I'll be here for another week. Well, you're welcome to come back. You just let me know, because we can put together some sort of podcast just with all of your thoughts and ideas Any, about I what's going on. what you do and how you do it, so I'm here at your service. So the thoughts flying around in your head. Well, I mean, there's been great Thank things you, that have way. happened to me over the last two years. I mean, I have to say, like, aside from being sick myself, I had chronic, excruciating headaches for between two and three months. And after getting tested 16 times, the only symptoms I had were, were fatigue, fatigue and my Long Island accent always creeps up on me, even when I'm here in the land of the Queen's Don't English. stop it, don't stop it. It's um, a Gatsby revival. I was really tired and I had terrible um, gnawing headaches that were just awful and then I got tested and I had no other symptoms other than at night I had a bit of a dry cough, but I had no fever and no, my oxygenation rate was fine. But anyway, so like aside from that, 2020 was really one of the, what was a great year for me, intellectually, cerebrally. I mean, because again, just Your like, output was every, insane. every three weeks I was at the airport chasing art fairs, which was, it was just superfluous. And it was just, it became so kind of like, um, it was just fungible. Like one, you couldn't tell what city you were in, what art you were looking at. It was just this constant kind of um, grind. And you, you had thoughts about it at the time. I, I remember. Yeah, but I have to. And then on another note, in 2018, the last time I saw you, um, I was with my son, who's passed away, and it was an issue. He was in Slade. He spoke so eloquently about art school, and um. He, yeah, I lost him to kind of issues that he kept utterly to himself and never expressed any kind of feelings that he was having, but he was having awful feelings and mental health issues and he never expressed it to any of us. And it's been basically, I mean, it was, yeah, from something as awful as that, I'm trying to make some good come. He took his life and it was just, he had everything in the world going for him, friends in every country, beautiful girlfriend and was in the greatest painting school probably in the world Slade 
and yet he never had any mental issues. He never had any anything that would be a sign, a representation of the fact that he was internally suffering. And yeah. So anyway, I've Kenny, been try- it's an interesting thing that you're talking about it. Well, and I'm I mean, really I've, glad that, you, that I've I'm, lectured I'm, about it. And I was crying in the School of Visual Arts when I gave a lecture that my when I first moved back to New York two years ago, um, I my son was graduate. My oldest child, Adrian, was graduating School of Visual Arts. And then I called up the department and got a lecture there. And then I spoke about it for the first time. And the rates of suicide from um, people ages 15 to 24 is up 60 percent in the last 10 years. And I never in my childhood, I'm in my, let's say, late 50s, <laughs> I never knew anyone that had experienced anything like that. And I, and with my kids today, they know dozens of people that have either attempted to take their lives or have done. So, and I just remember, like, I mean, I'm getting chills. No, me and I'm too. I'm trying to keep... I met like, your son once and I was, I was so in shock. I was so proud of Kai, yeah. the way he performed and spoke to you so eloquently, zero preparation, spoke about the ins and outs of art school and his experiences. And then we went and had a coffee afterward. And um, I just thought it was such a great experience. And I was just brimming with hope because together as a family, we all make art in the family. And um, we've done exhibitions together in... Shanghai, Los Angeles, London, New York, and now in Switzerland again. And there were no signs, zero signs. So anyway, I just think like by me talk, it's such a kind of... um, Invisible. It's invisible, but there's also a stigma that's associated with such a thing where like, I mean, I I still feel so responsible. And um, yeah, there's just like... In society as a whole, people look askance at someone, a families that have experienced such a thing. You feel remorse, you feel guilty, you feel responsible. And I think that other people look at you and turn their heads sideways and think like, what kind of horrible person are you that you could have experienced something like that in your life? And I just think since I've been teaching about it and talking about it in my writing and um I've had people just yesterday, somebody spoke to me and said they were contemplating a similar act. And just by me being, I mean, I just think we need to talk about things that are uncomfortable and it's far from easy. But again, I'm trying to take something that, I mean, there was a period where I didn't think I can, if if I didn't have other children, I probably wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. Because and I don't want to. Get no, 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 it's exactly to... what I thought as well. I thought you have three other kids, and that's the and... only thing that's. Ca- and not only that, but then I had another a child who had some um, drinking and drug issues, and I stopped drinking two years ago for the sake of him. And then when I lost Kai, I was just kind of habitually smoking marijuana, and I completely stopped. I just couldn't even look at it anymore. And when I stopped, it was it was like a some a veil had been lifted off of my head, and I just felt like. You get into these cycles, especially in the art world. You're constantly going out and socializing. And drinking is not just habitual, but it's de rigueur. You just think that... That's right. You don't you even do. question it. You no. don't think about it. And it's like, I'm very obsessive compulsive. And it, I call it's like the glass fills, the hand goes up. The glass That's gets right. filled, the hand goes up. And it's it's just, part of the conversation around the art the world. Culture, yeah. Not just in the art world, it's in every world. That's right. And the shocking thing was that it was a, such a revelation because it's such a stupid cliche that to be creative you have to get fucked up and I was 
I mean, I wrote, I wrote one article completely blacked out. I never wrote without some um, level of imbibing red wine, institutional amounts often. Um, it's encouraged. Smoking. It was encouraged. And then when I stopped, I mean, like you said, this is like it took a year just for my brain, the swelling to go down and to regain some degree of um, sobriety. And I don't go to programs. I don't preach what other people should do. A lot of people are very comfortable um, dealing with moderation in their life in all respects. And I don't happen to be one of them. I just said that. <laughs> I haven't learned how to moderate myself with Netflix. I also <laughs> don't drink anymore. I stopped the whole thing, too. And it, it's thank God we have the art world for it right. because you can yeah. approach it in an addictive Yes, I've learned manner to as well. My I've learned to redirect this. I mean, I'm not the smartest cookie, but I work hard and I am motivated and art saved my life. And as a result, I'm trying to help other people. I teach nonstop. My teaching has mushroomed. My writing has gotten much better. And I make art as well as another 12 different things. And I think that my artwork, my at least my, my productivity has exploded. And again, like I'm not preaching. I'm not in a cult. I'm not in, you know, there are different programs that help different people that they swear by. Some of it is a little bit extreme where people think you can only recover if you follow this route. I'm not going to name any names like I know. Alcoholics Anonymous or anything like that. Yeah, no. But I really don't care. It's whatever works for anybody. And That's right. I really have been like, in a sense, rejuvenated, um, reinvented, and saved <laughs> from art. And yeah, so again, like I've taken, like you mentioned Inigo Philbrick, and he was someone who stole $50 million from unsuspecting people in the art world. And many of his victims were very wealthy or um, companies like finance companies, some of the companies themselves, basically, he was not only just an instance of greed and a compulsion of his own, which was certainly exacerbated by his drinking and drug taking and his arrogance. But he was a super knowledgeable, funny, sympathetic character before he went awry. But the fact is, I wrote an article, I mean, he basically stole money from some very close friends of mine. And he stole between one and a half and two million dollars from me which was catastrophic and still is catastrophic but it wouldn't have bothered me because we made money in the past when he was doing legitimate business and that's just part of life but anyway when he stole money from my friends I was so incensed and hurt and um, mortified that I wrote a tell-all article for New York Magazine a year ago no, it lasts March. And then in June, it was reprinted in the Times here in the UK in the Saturday magazine. That's right. And then I had 10 offers for movies and documentaries. And I thought, I don't want to have my name in the credits. I don't need to be. I'm not a movie person. I am a one-trick pony. I do art 24 hours a day, <clears throat> seven days a week. I teach all the time. Every day I get, because I'm very frank and very transparent, which is quite unusual trait in the art world. That's right, too. I always tell people, like, look, I'm here. I've been doing this for 30 years. I've gained a certain amount of knowledge. And if you have any questions and if I can help in any way, I feel it's my, I'm compelled to help people because I just like to, and I like to, no one listens to me and my family. So I appreciate you sitting across, standing across from me. And I appreciate the audience and having, you know, I just think if any, if I have anything worth saying and, and if I can help, 
it's my duty. So I constantly tell people mm, if I every time I lecture and I've been lecturing more the past six months than ever before, um, I just tell people contact me, DM me. I respond to every single message within 24 hours. And if there's any which way I can help anyone, it's my pleasure. That's how I met you. I'd heard about you for years, and that's how I met you. I DM'd you. And I get, actually, after you've been on my show, I get young artists going, can you ask Kenny? I'm like, "What? ask him. He's give, accessible. I mean, you could just DM a me on, ask <clears> him. on Instagram is my name, and yeah. I'm not promoting anything, and I'm not making any money. In fact, like when I did an auction, only I could, I'm so unprofessional when it comes to making money. So I had an auction, and I managed to the like. Hoarder yeah, I hate Sotheby's. the word disruption or just being a plain pain in the ass, which is basically should be on my business card. But I did an auction, and in a way, it was like not sabotaging, but approaching an auction house in an entirely different fashion, right? which was no reserves, any price would do, things sold for $300. The most expensive lot was like two, low $200,000. That was another sculpture that I lost money on. What but piece I, was it? It was a um, Ken Price is a ceramicist right. from Los Angeles who's died. It was a piece I actually bought at auction. I rarely do. But in any event, the craziest thing was there was a homeless, there was a homeless artist at Sotheby's um, who made installations and all the locals knew about him when he was alive. And I included him in many group exhibitions, Curtis Cuffey. He was wildly talented. And the thing London was, or New York? He was New York. And in the auction, I had art from people that don't make art anymore. I had a car. I had a, I saw. I had a, a sculpture that I made in the form of jewelry. And there was furniture and there was places to sit down. And the craziest and thing was- And you were on site talking I to kept, people. I kept- office so i i know it's i love art and i think so back to like i mean i'm going to kind of free associate here Good. but um, i'm up for it when indigo stole all my money i basically in all these documentary companies and movie companies came to me i basically i said i thought long and hard about a documentary and i realized why on earth would i devote six months of my life and talk about bad behavior correct and the art world is a bell's curve of morality that's right and integrity and ethics and um most people said honestly about the Ineo Philbrick thing while you're thinking what you're going to say next most people said it was probably one or two deals that went wrong no it and was, the next thing yeah <laughs> but it must no he was bad he turned bad he stole like literally one company he borrowed 15 million dollars from and he gave that he collateralized the loan with five paintings but he kept possession of the paintings. Then he went to another company and borrowed 15 million from them. And he used the same collateral uh, for the first loan, for the second loan. So then he had 30 million. Then he borrowed more money and sold art that he didn't own. I mean, I'm such a bad art dealer. When I do deal, I can't sell art once. And he sold the same piece of art five times. So you have to take hats off to him. But anyway, so I, when yeah. I approached one producer um, and I said, look, I'll do a film with you because you and and this one producer had gone to art school and he was sympathetic to the arts. So again, like people say the art world is unregulated and a cesspool of corruption, which I may have said myself at the Hay Festival when I was giving a talk. And it is, but it's no different from any other sector, whether it's there are doctors that are bad. In fact, there was a heart surgeon that stole millions from a foundation that was meant to enable children to get heart surgery. And he took all the money that he embezzled and bought art and in a cynical, nasty, funny way, I refer to him as the best art collector in the world because he just had to have it so desperately that, I mean, okay, so that's a little bit too facetious. 
But the fact is, um, but I want, it talks to the need. I was able to sit like the art world is no more or less corrupt than like look at Goldman Sachs, the most famous investment bank, and there is worse than anybody. Or pharmaceuticals, <laughs> pharmaceutical companies yeah. increasing prices, for rent and rates, everything. Um, really, so I mean, many. realtors. At all the of same it. time, art gives me hope and fills me with passion and love. To the it has not changed since the first. I mean, I was very late coming to art. And the fact that I um, didn't know that a commercial art world and art market existed till I was nearly 27, I had no idea that art was bought or sold. I thought naively, I call myself an idiot, idiot savant, but I thought that art went from the studio into a museum. And it was not until I was procrastinating between jobs that I stumbled into Sotheby's when they were selling Andy Warhol's estate. And I was not particularly interested in his art, but I went there just to kill time. And they were gearing up for an auction. Of, all the art I had seen in the museum was being sold. And I didn't even know art could be sold. And there was Andy Warhol. You were a finance guy at the time. No, what? No. Tell me. I told you, I'm, when it comes to money, money doesn't sit with me terribly well. I spend it. If I make $5, I spend $7. What were you doing at the time? <laughs> I went to law school just to hide because I had a philosophy degree. Yeah. I went to law school with zero intent to practice. I told my family and my employers that I was in night school, but there was no night school. And then I worked uh, on the stock exchange floor in New York City. I worked as a writer for law firms. And I ended up passing out my resume to 100 different, under 100 doors in the garment district. I wanted to do something creative and entrepreneurial, but I didn't know you could make art for a living. Until you stumble into this Warhol exhibition, right. which so is part then, of living so, in New York. Right. You well, see things. Yeah, exactly. You know? There's so many galleries there. Yeah. It's so dense. With and culture. cities being open. And then I just, I went into fashion before that because that was some a business that had to do with creativity. And I was like Willie Loman carrying ginormous suitcases around the East Coast of America selling neckwear, fanning the ties out on a table and selling them. And the craziest thing, because my life is so improbable, I was allergic to silk the whole time. So I had to like fan out the ties, try to sell $1,200 of ties to a, to a, a, a committee of 15 people to spend $1,000. And then I had training. to go, and then all I had to training. wash my hands really fast so I didn't get hives all over my face. And uh, every time I have such a, a, a pathological fear of getting lost in the worst sense of direction, I couldn't even find my way with a sat nav by foot from where I parked my little car to get here. That's why you saw me going to and fro. Back. I knew it, though. I told you, didn't I? I'm like, he's like me. Studio. He's going to get lost. Me. But I'm the same. I could tell you things that are... So back to this Well, anyway, I'm just trying to say into. that the art world... Like, I'll, I'll actually circle back to where we started. Oh, so um, many things I need to say as well. Well, like, you, like this has been a, an unprecedented year of business closures, tra human tragedy, loss of life. I mean, London is locked down. Um, we're here just because we're allowed to work. But stores are closed. Restaurants are closed. Um, people are losing money hand over foot and everyone is struggling. Nevertheless, life has to go on right. because we're here and we're living. That's right. And art goes on because people make art the same way they go to sleep and eat and go to the bathroom, I, I, as I said before. And I agree. And anyway, so you just have to figure out what to do and to make the best in trying difficult times. So you're working with young artists. What is the sense they have at the moment? They didn't get their grad shows. I don't know where their creativity is at, how they're feeling about their relationships with online, how they're... What, where are young artists well, that's really with great, right now? a great question. And um, I mean, I always like... There was a... When I studied law, there was a case 
this is just random, but there was a, a law case and the issue was uh, the illegality of extreme pornography in the United States in the 50s. And one of the Supreme Court justices was writing his opinion and he said, I can't explain in my in my writing what pornography is that is the kind that they were trying to legislate against, but I know it when I see it. And it's like, I'm getting chills just talking about all these issues. And like just today, I had a DM, a direct message on Instagram, which has absolutely revolutionized the art world and democratized it and broken down so many hierarchies. But I had a message like, everybody wants to know how can they survive as an art maker, as a content producer in the visual arts and various other art forms, what can they do to survive? And I say, just do not even think about trying to send your work to a gallery for representation or for promotion or for help because galleries in the small to mid-sized level are for the first time there's been rhetoric for decades about how these galleries have a difficult time and they're suffering but now they truly are suffering as everybody is so this is no time uh to try to um, approach galleries for some sort of commercial assistance. They can't help you. They can't help you. They and can't help you right how now. How could you start a market for an artist right. that has no exposure right. when there's no galleries that are even open today? And so what ones... do you suggest they do? So we're really lucky because I'm so old. I could tell you like when hamburgers used to cost five cents. And I could say that when I started in the art world in the late 80s, um, I'm not 80, you you had to send a photographic representation of the work that you were doing to be seen by another human being. There was no other way to convey. Do you remember the slides? Yeah, there was a sheet. There was a, a sheet that <laughs> contained twenty photographic slides that were about one inch square, and you would have to hold it up to the sun and to the light yeah, and see unless them. Unless they had a light table, and then you'd get it right. Blast. But then most galleries would receive unsolicited material and throw it in the garbage without even opening it. There was only one gallery, um, besides my independent curating at the time, a gallery with a man called Hudson. He had one name and his gallery was called Feature and he was extraordinary. And he would actually take out a red pen and critique every submission that was sent to him. And it was a beautiful, extraordinary quality. But again, like back to the whole Inigo thing, back to what we're talking about, there's a lot of great things that are happening and a lot of great initiatives online. So now it used to be so difficult. Access is one of the most difficult uh aspects of the art world how do you get access to collectors how do you get access to you know to the art world to get Correct. a foot into the commercial dissemination of artwork yeah and the fact is you have to the do-it-yourself mentality which is how i started yeah. and it's funny because when i went i used to do hit and run shows before the term pop-up existed where i would hit and runs much better i would beg borrow and steal to get an uninhabited commercial storefront and i would trade whatever art i had accumulated and I would just take over a space temporarily, stage a show, keep the doors wide open no matter what the season was, and steal a mailing list from a gallery and just try to get a critical response and some exposure and some funds for emerging artists. And it's funny because when I did the auction, fast forward 30 years, when I had the auction at Sotheby's, it was the first time in 276 years that someone who sold work was sitting on the floor trying to sell their own shit. So interesting. It's never happened before. And I kept, I literally had a desk that said Kenny Schachter, the hoarder. That's right. And I, the, the fact was there was somebody who worked at Sotheby's in New York. He's head of online sales, which has become the only way that now auction houses are doing hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions online. 
So because I did the first hoarder sale last December, um, so I've done two, hoarder one last December and a year later. You had one around here. I had I one in London one because S2. I was moving. That's yeah. when I got the idea. And there yeah. was a great guy called Darren Leake, and he's been yeah. fired from Sotheby's because <laughs> he was so artistic and he wasn't as commercial as they might have liked. But anyway, that went really well, and then I did it again, and I met this guy called Harrison Tenzer, who's head of online sales at Sotheby's, and the first thing he said to me was, why don't you make some fake satirical ads poking fun at Sotheby's? And I thought, you know what, this is going to work. He said that. He said that. And I just, and I realized, That's of course. That's what we need, the fun again. Yes. He was an artist. He is an artist on the side. Yeah. And his mentality was so fantastic and so creative and so against the grain yeah. that I kept office hours, and it ended up to be the same feeling as when I had a show in 1990. There was people coming in off the street. There were great people that came in and there were some crazy motherfuckers that scared <laughs> the shit out of me. They always Towards are there. the end and I was petrified, but that's what you do when you're like a hood ornament on a car. Just the doors are open and anybody can come that in. That was the fun of it. It was fun, but it did get a little bit scary. Yeah, but we'll thankfully, sell Banksy and then find out the weirdos that come out. You know what? I have to say, like, I like Banksy. I think he's I, funny course. and I think humor is such an important... I mean, there were certain street artists that I abhor i won't say the name of i think one. i know i think His we name all is know cause. <laughs> i won't tell you the cause of my dismay but i just i don't care what you do i don't care like if you're the biggest i mean i always say i'm an asshole but i'm not a cu and no yeah fill in the last letter yeah because i have good i'm well intended but i could be a little bit naughty and problematic and, but that's good yeah so Being i just provocative like, i like to make my 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 life interesting and the life interesting for other people so anyway to I know. How did we do it? We I've have done, five minutes left of the I've, show. You I've have done, to come back I've on done a lot of online shows. Yes. So I use Instagram. I used Instagram to promote my auction. 50% of the buyers were, had never been to Sotheby's. That's never great. Never bought anything. That's great. And it's funny because I did it because Sotheby's does all the logistics. My attention span is three minutes. Weren't they under 42, your buyers, your particular they were all buyers? Young, yes. Yeah, and the that's thing is, really like, interesting I used too. Instagram to promote the show. Right. And people, it's funny because Sotheby's does the packing, the shipping, the chasing, the money, all the shit that I can't, I don't have the attention span for. It's amazing. But then because I was so open about my stuff being sold in this context, which was very unorthodox because I'm not the most professional. And then all the people that bought stuff started to get in touch with me, oftentimes asking me questions, the kind of questions that I was trying to get away, run away from by having Sotheby's do all the dirty work. But people are asking me, like, what's the history of the piece? What does it mean? When was it first shown? What does the artist think about it? So in a way, it like, but anyway, back to Which like, is great. You want them having those conversations. I tell artists, if I can impart any advice to anyone, it's just make your Instagram site focused. Don't make it only about art because that's boring, but lighten up on the dogs and the food yeah. and just reach out by direct message to anyone who's ever crossed your, 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 your mind that you think could have a similar sensibility or may be able to help you. Don't be shy. I, I fail every day of my life. I'm going to fail later today, but I never stop trying. And there's so many, tragically, so many companies have gone out of business. So negotiate with the landlord to take over a space, trade art, get a space for free do shows when the world slowly begins to reopen again. And in the meantime, 
promote the shit out of your stuff on Instagram and just don't be shy about it. Put things for sale for $200, $300. That's how I meet loads of artists. So many people I've fallen deeply in love with professionally and personally I've met through Instagram. And my kids have always said like, what the fuck is wrong with you? All you do is go on Instagram 24 hours a day. But it's absolutely transformed my work method, my life, my relationships with people. And there really is such a thing. People say, oh, you're on the phone. You lose sense with people. It's a community of people. And I've met half of them in yeah. person. So don't discount it. I agree. And use it as a tool every day. Especially now. Aren't we lucky to have it? It's Imagine if we, we didn't. Have. Imagine if we yeah. didn't. I mean, sooner or later, it's going to be transplanted because Mark Zuckerberg and all those dickheads in the tech world are so greedy. So anyway, use it now. In five years, it's going to be another platform. But for now, it's the best. And there's no alternative. Zero. In terms of artists that you're looking at at the moment. And by the way, I'll just ask you now, if you're free on Tuesday come back sure? we'll do a part two i'm absolutely enough? sure i'm absolutely sure? sure we have I'm a guest sweating. who's he's not coming in because you're the only yeah, sure. one in the last year who's got the right to come back, in you'll see me going to and back but and forth there's and a guy I'll called dot masters who's it. taking over sh shops on high street kensington you and i can talk to him together yeah. uh, but come Let's back in if you're together. if you're yeah but uh, who are you watching right now i mean well the, i mean i watch every there's a woman eva berrison yeah and an emerging people think New art is young. It's such a misnomer. An emerging artist could be anywhere from 20 years old to 100 years old. And I, I met this artist Nicely without put. knowing who she was, what she was. I wrote her a letter. I'm like, are you old, young, gay, straight, married? Do you have kids? I love the biographical facts. And I, she's 65 years old. She had was her parents survived the Holocaust. She lives. She's Hungarian. lived in Vienna. lives in Vienna. And I just loved her work. Bought a few pieces for hundreds of dollars. That's it. And I started, I put her in an art fair, I showed her online, and she's now gotten three international gallery shows, and I've sold 40 works, and I've changed her life, and she changed mine. Brilliant. That's exactly what an art dealer should do. I'm a facilitator. That's a, I'm no art that's a Castelli suck. kind of thing. I just I want to say your, one thing. What, thank you on. very much. It's an absolute Thank you for pleasure. having me, and I just thank I, you for letting me express myself so freely. Please come back on Tuesday. It. We'll do a part two if you're available. There's so much I want to say about you that. You get a and, chance. Uh, okay. No, I just... I will get a chance, Bye. and I'm happy You're to off. interrupt. Uh, thank you for listening to A Private View. <laughs> thank you, Kenny Schachter, for being here. Thank you, Korsh and Homie, for producing. I love the energy. Kenny, come back on Tuesday if you're free, <laughs> and we'll put a podcast together on this. Uh, for now, goodbye. Here's a clip from the interview with Kenny Schachter and Kai Schachter from the 5th of February, 2019. Uh, we're playing this with Kenny's blessing. So this is Kai Schachter, a tribute to him. I'm in the presence of Kenny Schachter and his son Kai, who comes and explodes the world with, I've got nothing to say. You ask me the questions when I know it's not true. I read Kenny's work. I look at his Instagram. I've heard about him for years. I saw the family guy at Simon Lee. We had the chance to meet in this studio before Christmas, before Miami Art Basel. And lucky, I'm lucky to have him back. So... Hi, Kenny. Can you fill us in on the time between now and the last time I saw you when you were dying with a cold? Thanks for having me and my kid, one of the many. Thank you. Um, well, I can tell you what I'm doing next instead of what I've been doing since. Not much. More Can't you or less. do both? I'll do my best. Uh, we're on our way to Los Angeles because they're having the first... I'm no major Freeze Art Fair fan yeah. myself, but 
they they will have the first iteration of Freeze in Los Angeles, which is is a big turning point in the history of the contemporary art scene in L.A. Because this is really kind of like a coming out party where L.A. for the first time, there's been a lot of momentum and a lot of gravity going towards Los Angeles in terms of cheaper studio space for artists, more room to spread out, uh, less expensive than various other city centers and a burgeoning commercial art center, private museums, which is one of my pet subjects to talk about. I want to revisit it. I've got a note about revisiting that. You dropped that last time and I want to it go It doesn't take it. much to go wind on. me up. And then besides that, there's just been a, a plethora of new galleries cropping up all over in the downtown area, uh, various places all over the town. And as a result, and Freeze was bought recently in the past couple of years, a controlling stake in the art fair was bought by Endeavor, which is a talent agency. And as a result, we could talk about that because there's a few other political issues that spring off of that subject. But this will be the first freeze. And there's another fair called Felix, which is an ancillary fair. Whenever there's one big mothership of a fair, often there'll be 10 or 20 small ancillary fairs popping up. And already I think there's at least 10 slated for LA during the course of this. The opening is February 14th for the Freeze and Felix. Then there's Spring Break. Spring Break is a really cool art fair in New York. They just announced they're going to be popping up for this uh, time frame as well. You're stopping me. You keep pointing at me. I am me. not You're stopping you. Me. I don't want to stop you. I never want to stop you. I want you to hurt come me. every time I do this show and be here. So, no, I am never stopping you, I promise. Uh, so, But I do want to roll back a bit. Uh, this is the first freeze in L.A. Uh, there's something that I want your opinion on because I heard they have psychics who are acting as art consultants as to a, collectors. No, really. They're having mean? a psychic booth as psychic oh, art advisor. As an art piece is that by just somebody. just a gimmick? That sounds like a gimme. I like it. Or it could just be very L.A. Oh. Sounds L.A. <laughs> the first time I went for lunch with someone in L.A., they mixed a Perrier and a, a still water and a sparkling, a sparkling water at a water spritzer. There you go. But we'll leave that for another time, the L.A. psychology, as opposed to here, for instance. I really like it. Okay, so what I want to talk to you about is... A little, the art fair as a medium, I think these are kind of theories that are, everyone's been kicking around, but we haven't on this show. So the art, mar- the art fair as an art market medium, why it works, why it doesn't, uh, what the top five are like, what you expect from Los Angeles. Like you said, people have been talking about Los Angeles being the rival to New York for the last 20 years, and it hasn't ever really happened. There hasn't been a concentration of collectors that really support the, the, the system enough, although that seems to be changing. There's much more of an international component gravitating towards the city now. As far as art fairs, in the year 2000, there were 50 art fairs, and last year there were about 260. So it's been a mushroom crowd of an, a cloud of an explosion of interest in art fairs. And some of the reasons why are just mere convenience and the economy of time. If you want to visit... From where we live in Fulham, if you want to visit a gallery in East London from Fulham, one gallery, you have to clock three hours in for the round trip trip. So nobody really has the patience or the wherewithal. You go all the way there and then you see one little thing in the corner of the floor and you're gone three hours are shot. So mainly art fairs are thriving because of a multitude of reasons, including increased global demand for art and interest. And it's an easy place to go see a hell of a lot of art in the least compressed amount of time. And there's a celebratory factor to it. It's like a big party. Well, I mean, there's this kind of like one of the big changes I've noticed in the past couple of decades in the art world is this kind of like sense of community, not community so much, although we're all traveling in bands of people 
um, going to the same shows, the same biennials, the same. So the fairs take on a social, very much so it becomes like parties, social component, luxury lifestyle type of thing, for lack of a better phrase. We were pre-Miami Art Basel the last time I spoke, and I was going to say, has Miami Art Basel become the obligatory pre-Christmas stopover for wealthy people every year? Has it, is that the way it is? Is there actually great art there, or is it just no, another I mean, even in, there's stopping. always great art there. I, I mean, Miami is more, is reductively speaking, Miami is the most party-defined of all the fairs. You've spent a few, you've been to a few, had a few events there you may want to share yeah. with us, or... I mean, I also think kind of like it's become, especially with Miami, I think it's become almost as much as a music event and the party event as an art event. And I think there's a whole other side of it of all these kind of like hanger honors that are just there for the party and actually have nothing at all to do with the actual art world. Uh, for ex Mike Tyson did a project in Miami when I was just there, for an example. Hence so your fusion with his face. Go right. On. I mean, some people would say that's the end of the art world when you have Mike Tyson weighing in curating a show at one of the hotels in town and he was promoting his marijuana ranch in Las Vegas, of all things. So really, in a certain respect, with all joking aside, art has really changed in its kind of like functionality or its purpose over the last years when it's gravitated more towards like lifestyle, fashion, parties, and a lot of money. So for instance, there's this hotel in Vegas near a billion dollars with the Fertitta brothers, these two brothers that made their fortune in cage fighting, of all things. And they invested in Damien Hirst's show in, in, in Venice over the last summer. And they've also purchased these works to, to decorate the hotel, these gigantic pastiches of previous works that Damien's done and Jeff Koons. So in a way, the artists are complicit by supplying these these hotels. It's a decorative element. It's a hybrid between fine art and design and luxury goods. And the artists do it because they're cashing in big time. And then you have this hotel, which is like a kind of Disney park for adults. The, so do the artists do it just to cash in or are they also doing it to subvert there's no subversion going on okay. in Las Vegas at the Fertitta Brothers. Fine. Party down casino. No, there's no there's no subversion on any. The irony is lost to all. I mean, I think you can't make a sweeping generalization about why an artist will do anything commercially or, you know, there are opportunities at spring and it, every artist has their own, you know, reasoning. People, some artists do things to, to make money for studio practice or for production for basic projects. So there's all a multitude of different reasons. But at that level, when you're in Vegas... <laughs> There's a whole other thing happening. So, Kai, I'm going to go back to you for a minute because it mm. sounds like you've got some ideas about Miami and hangers on. And with all the people going to it, with a tiny percentage of the 50,000 or so or 500,000 who go, if only 2,000 are buying, how do, you, how do you explain the whole scene from your point of view? I mean, I think there always will be great art there because it always will be an art event at its core. And that's how it was at the start. And that's how that will always be at the core. But I just think it's expanded so much and it's probably compared to like when you first started going, there's probably like a hundred times the size. And then there are all, it's all these just, I guess it's like all these companies see it as an opportunity to kind of cash in on the party of it kind of thing. If That's a good point, starting, just because I was going to say, because yeah. it used, it never used to be that companies would even look at art and the art scene as a marketing exercise. And in a way, like I remember like in, when I was starting in the 80s, there was one fashion TV show on CNN with Elsa Clench. And that was the only fashion show in the world. And that was before the kind of, you know, fashion designers became celebs and models. And in a way, art, like in, in America anyway, I mean, there was a much more higher profile visibility. Like Tracy Emin just opened a show at White Cube. They've been working together for 25 years. And really, they kind of launched a whole uh, scene in London and the UK where the art 
really trickle down to people people all over the city would know about all over the country would know about the antics of Tracy and Damien and what they're up to. But in America, that never really happened. And art was always so isolated and kind of hermetic that people, it was so exclusionary in terms of who would appeal to and why that in spite of itself, when young kids are doing great kinds of, of art relating to media and technology and all these things that could suck in a wider audience, but it never really happened in America until the last 20 years because sort of it was just market. It was always, it was always like they were trying to exclude people that they couldn't understand it and they couldn't afford it. That's why it's so expensive and only meant for the few. And then in spite of itself, the kind of marketing machine found this bastion that hadn't been exploited. And then the rest you could see in Miami right now. That's good because it took it out of the two New York and LA, the only two places or Chicago that would have art. And so the art fairs have sort of opened it up to a new market. And like I said, which was a great point, like the kind of commercialization of it where it became this kind of fodder for, for, the, for a machine, for advertising. So, so Kai, you said that it's your first year at Slade. Mm, yeah. Clearly you've grown up in an, an arty mm. household. I've and I was out of SVA before in New York City. Oh, you, so Okay, so where do you see this starting here with all of this kind of new worlds opening up that was once an art world that had more of a structured way of being where do you see yourself if you could imagine it fitting mm. into it what would you want to how would you want to make your living in in the art world so you mean like geographically i don't mind just hit generally. it any way you want geographically <laughs> I, mean, like, I don't expect you to stay in one place it doesn't look like i guess that the would be. like kind of like the thought of being somewhere isolated and being away from it all is always kind of something exciting and has a certain mystique to it but I guess at the end of the day, that doesn't really make sense because no matter how advanced social media and the internet gets within the art world and the art market, you at the end of the day always do have to be somewhere where there's some type of scene, little if none, kind but of going on. Do you know what I love? That you answered it as a lifestyle question rather than saying what you're making. What are you mm. going to be making? What will you be doing? What do you think? I, I, mean, I know you don't have a crystal yeah. ball. But I think it's a really cool point because there was recently an article in the Wall Street Journal that said they did a study of like 50,000 artists and on top of all of these different, like you mentioned, technology and the internet and Instagram is by far one of the most shocking changes I've seen in 30 years in the art business, how it's affected the way people look at art, experience it, exper relate to each other with direct messages and so forth. A gallery I know has just curated their exterior to have an interactive presence, an AR presence, so the people who are Instagramming at it will be logged into their it's an I mean those things will change Wait, what were you saying before <laughs> there was something you were saying them I don't know but as much as like as much as I feel like human interaction be just reduced oh, yeah, no, to no, this no. idea of just pure like it just becomes data I feel like you you will always have to be on the ground. To some what extent. I was going to say is in this article in the Wall Street Journal where they did a study with like thousands of artists some of the core some of the core ingredients that they try to kind of reduce it to to a, a what defines success or what are some of the common shared ingredients of successful artists over the course of history and you have to still on top of all of the like you said technology dispersing things you have to be in a place like london new york I rome agree. you have to be in a central place yeah. like you said it's not a scene that he's talking about in a social scene you have to be in a community of like-minded people yeah. pursuing the same thing because that's i guess where the support systems yeah, gravitate and you're lucky you have it within your family Mm -hmm. I mean, that's quite <laughs> extraordinary to begin yeah. with. But... He's, he's very, very helpful father. So it... We get into some fights, though. That's <laughs> part of the fun. That is part of the fun. The debate Curatorial part of the fun. wars. The five artists that you like at the moment. Kai. That's tough. It's t always a tough question. I guess I'm, I would probably just turn to sort of like the people I know creating art right now. And I have a friend called Rafiq Reese. He's an incredible 
like art photographer and which is normally a medium that I'm not super into when it comes to something I respond to. But he's super, super talented. Spell his My, name in case someone doesn't get Rafik it. Rafik Grice. Right. It's G-R-I-E-S-S. R-A-F-I-K. Yes. He's and, an Egyptian um, kid. And of course, my brother Adrian, who lives in New York City and is still at his last year at SCA, making amazing, amazing paintings all the time. And in the In the vein of what? If you would describe a painting um, for me, how would I'd you describe it? I'd say it's very it? like alternate reality, dreamlike, idealized, a lot of influence from the internet and... Figurative and abstraction, kind of shards of both. If you were to name an artist, is there anyone that would help me? Kind I'd of say he's very him? influenced by Mike Kelly. And Jim Shaw. Jim Shaw. Oh, God. We had dinner with Jim Shaw. and um, Jim, Shaw was actually one, Jim Shaw actually said to me, he said something along these lines of, he was kind of going on about how his kids wanted to go to Coachella and this and that and how he hated living in LA so much. And I was just like, well, surely you're at the point in your career where you're like successful enough to go and just move out to wherever you want to and have your practice running from there. And he was like, I'm an artist. And at the end of the day, I need to be where there are people with money and there are people <laughs> with money that want to spend it on art. <laughs> And that's someone who they claim is on the spectrum. Right. I mean, but it's so far off of it. I mean, he had the best booth at Freeze, bar none. Oh, right. His one-person show. Incredible show, show yeah. at, mm -hmm. at Freeze. And he told you that. Yeah, yeah. Paraphrase, And Mike Kelly? Did you... Were you meet Mike Kelly before he... Uh, no, but left? Jim Shaw, I was lucky enough to hear some stories about him in his lifetime. And we had dinner with him in Hong Kong. My, my favorite story about Mike Kelly, and this leads up to what I saw of yours at Sotheby's recently, is he was Irish Catholic immigrant parents. I think it was Ohio. And my parents are Irish Catholic. I've told you this before. So I get the sentiment. He told his parents for years that he was a stand-up comedian because <laughs> they would never Amazing. understand what he was doing if he said he was an artist. I would and, give and him I, the same thing if he decided not to be an artist. I, <laughs> That's the thing. It's so sure. completely amazing. I mean, now it's become like business school, fine art school. So parents today or families probably have a different notion of, of going of what it would have been like. I mean, I remember sitting across from my dad and him telling me, you said if you weren't making a living after a year, you would quit out of this. And he tried to actually force my hand to get me to quit art altogether. I can see who won that battle. <laughs> I can see who won that battle. I, okay, so let me regroup a bit. Tell me a bit about Felix, because I know you wanted to talk about that. I have a question later about Brazil, um, and then I want to talk to you about this and Sotheby's. But firstly, Felix, on the collaborative effort you're doing, you can take it away if you want, Guy. Well, it's the third iteration, four, fifth iteration, of our family exhibition together, where my lovely father gets a bunch of artists he's worked very closely with since the late 80s, early 90s, and mixes it in with my mother and my three brothers and I. And it's super exciting to kind of like turn these like art events into family holidays and into something we could all kind of approach together. And we all have a say in the curatorial aspect of it. And we all kind of like put our hand in whether it's my 15 year old brother saying he doesn't like where that's placed or can his piece be there or it's my... 18 year old brother who doesn't consider himself an artist exactly but still makes great work and still is always included in it and still says his say and adds to the whole dynamic and general conversation of it all oh my god i just realized how intense this could get I because mean, we, what if one person's a better artist than the other or not or can we even go there i mean that's the even family? the least i mean there's so many there's so many dynamics at work from the psychological mm -hmm. to master slave relationship and the fighting but the the thing what is if like someone's work sells and someone else doesn't 
Don't even. Ask him because we've, <laughs> that just happened in the last show. I mean, you can never foretell what's going to happen, how well it's going to go. And, and when one person does it? well at the expense of an... I always say the art world in a more general, serious notion. Like in economics, there's a zero-sum uh, zero game. And I think, which means that one company or one person does well at the expense of another person. So part of the dynamic is, I mean, even before you get to art on the wall that's being sold, there's so many things going on and so many different conversations and dialogues. And in a way, it's like the craziest thing because I never went to art school until I started teaching it. And I had no background in this. And when we're in the midst of one of these projects, just the way the family just sort of organically drifts from one room into the other, and all these conversations start to have about the art, about the formal aspects, about the process, about the end result. What It's such the coolest thing. And I say, like, I never had a good relationship with my folks. My mother passed away when I was very young. My father wasn't exactly the nicest nor most supportive person and to have this dynamic in my family, I mean, in a way, because we've had a few issues with this one, with the other one. Impossible. Some very hideous behavior. Not this one. There have been explode. Forget the fire where my house was nearly burnt down that I wrote about two years ago. There's I told been- you my friend with four kids said, yeah. did they do it on purpose? Well, she was so relieved. I'm wondering the act- same. I'm wondering the same. I'm not quite certain about that. The jury's still <laughs> I've out. I've seen mine trying to light the, her four boys. She's like, I saw them trying to light the house on fire on purpose. Well, his cl- when his house exploded when I was in Miami, the, the cause was... Was, uh, it was grilled cheese sandwich. <laughs> grilled cheese sandwich, pot getting too close to some turpentine, and there you go, another combustion action in my family. So but four boys was, wasn't enough. What now I'm you trying have to, to set them in competition. No, to but like good. when it comes to the art, I mean, in yeah. all seriousness, like art really is like. Absolutely. I mean, nothing. Like I said, like people have terrible. Most people have had some awful familial experiences, and in a way, art has become something way beyond what I ever dreamt. I mean, it's in a way a fabric, a social fabric that adheses our whole family together. And if it wasn't like when kids reach a certain age, you don't choose your family and most people wouldn't if they were given the choice. And then to have this kind of thing Amazing. that keeps us together, it's, I mean, the hair is standing up on my arm and it can make me cry yeah, me too. because it just brings us together in a way that I never could have dreamt. And look, these kids do their own effing thing and I, don't, I would never try to say like, we're having dinner Wednesday at eight o'clock. Shh. They would just tell me to go, whatever. So the fact that that we have this project and we travel together and another one of my kids had a whole other set of problems and then we take him with us to go to LA to do the whole and then it just it's kind of like a psychotherapy session for us and it binds us together in a way that I never would have dreamt it's the spiritual side in you that I keep Yikes. seeing over and over again don't tell anybody <laughs> I, know, yeah. I know how can I keep away from it so <laughs> Brazil used to be the place that bought all the art in the art fairs is that still the case in Miami it's I leading mean, up to something, don't worry. I think in something. Miami, you definitely have you have a whole South American situation going on, which is the indigenous people that are between uh, South America, Miami, and Florida. That's a whole other layer of kind of um, support and uh, patron- patronism that you get that you don't get at other places. I mean, What's there's been a whole about? hell of a lot of crises going on all over the world. Right. So these kinds of patterns shift very quickly. You have China one year changing the whole basically paradigm shifting the whole art market and then the windows close on moving capital out of the country and that's closed and then you have other places pop i mean basically the art world is this giant stream and every time there's a rock that pops up in south america brazil is out of the equation russia was a potential contender at one point the middle east qatar and building then they you know and then that collapsed as well but then like another thing springs up then someone in japan starts to make big waves in the market america has always been incredibly supportive and 
embracing all forms of contemporary art commercially and institutionally. So I just think like we're in, people are always complaining, like in the US, especially Trump, about globalism and these kind of scourge of globalism. But that's been one of the great defining factors that have expanded the art market and created a whole hell of a lot of more opportunities for all of us that do it for a living. There's a few things in it. I mean, people lately have been saying the art fairs are on the way out, but you don't believe that. I it's bullshit. Tell. I mean, okay. I think that there's going to be like freeze or what, let's use freeze for an example. Very kind of, I never really, I mean, I joke about how I, they, they get on my nerves quite a lot, but I just find them to be a little bit arrogant and exclusionary in terms of what they do and how they do it. And But that's fair. No, nobody has to behave like an asshole for no reason, really. You know, you could just do the same damn thing well and be more humanistic about it and just friendly on a fundamental basic level. But now the power balance, what's great is that the power balance has changed because there's a plethora of fairs. There's so many fairs. There's so many opportunities to do these types of things that the power, the balance of power is shifting. So now, like for the first time, Freeze offered the birth for a participant, Nicole Klagsburn, who was a very interesting gallerist from New York who had a mid-level gallery. This whole There's a whole other discussion about the pressure that mid-level galleries are under. Her gallery closed, but Freeze gave her a berth in one of the fairs, and they've never given anyone a booth that didn't have a gallery. There's very strict criteria. That's right. yeah. So now, and then they just mentioned that they were going to reduce the prices for some very small young galleries, 50%. That's not called like benevolence or altruism right. that's bullshit they're just filling filling the space because there's so much competition and freeze had a disaster in new york when the air, con the air conditioner didn't work the tent turned into like a smelting pod and there was a class action lawsuit against them oh you're and saying it was just, it's not it's not benevolent it's not there's altruism. nothing oh, absolutely they need, zero ah. they're doing it for the sole reason of because they have no other choice that's the only way they can keep attracting keep themselves in this dialogue of trying to do something right and have you heard all, of this werner tax Oh, what the, David Werner said he would help subsidize. Again, it's all it's PR it, bullshit. It is. And then so Basel reduces the booth fare for small galleries like $483, which is not going to help anyone. You're taking all your shit to Basel to sell and trying to make a living if they reduce your cost by under $500. So what's going on? It's PR. Got it. That's Got it. it. So we're here with Kenny and Kai Schachter, and Kai is going to tell us. Kai, I go ahead. Just take it away. Take it away. Okay, so... um. I guess I'll just take this opportunity, I guess, to talk about some super exciting stuff. And why you like the Slade. Yes, of course. I mean, it was just, it's been a great, it's been like a great, great experience to ha kind of have this move from New York to London at this point in my career. And I kind of, after studying in the States for so long, it's an entirely different way of teaching. It can't even be compared. So it's very like classroom based until the final, till the very final year of an undergraduate in America. I'd, at least the well, I went to three different schools in New York because I couldn't quite find the one I wanted. So I went to Parsons, SVA, and saying that you went Pratt. to three schools is a bit generous. I mean, yeah, just just about went to three schools. <laughs> what I'm trying to express is that um, <laughs> it's really just not very conducive to learning this way of teaching because a lot of the, the teachers, American way, the American I way. I agree. For ex a lot of these, a lot of the teachers at SVA and at Parsons and at Pratt were teaching, and that was their primary source of income. So they were very kind of like afraid to kind of tell you your work was bad even or like in case they get reviewed something even that simple you know yeah, what I, mean? I do know and what you I, mean at the Slade which is I've had such an experience such an incredible experience that so far all the teachers are actually great artists in their own rights and have their own practices and are actually making art and sending it frequently and are showing their work and I only had really one teacher called Toby Khan at SVA that really made as much of an impression on me as all the teachers do at the Slade 
And, the, and we went to the grad show last year. The grad show stood out. Incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've never and seen even just the way that you, even just to be able to have your materials there and just to leave them there and have your studio space and have your own little corner in the school where you can just have all your things and come in when you want, leave when you want. And it's it kind of it doesn't color you and it teaches you what it would actually be like to be an artist making art in your studio. And you have to go ahead and really push yourself and force yourself because if you don't, nobody else will. And they're not giving you a homework assignment saying, I mean, I remember what really stuck to me is in the interview, they actually said to me, they said, at this school, it's, we don't care about how much you make. We care about what you make. So it's not about making like a painting week. I can make a pa- I cannot make a painting for three years and then suddenly make one painting. And if it's good enough, then they'll pass me and I'll be, get the degree. Hmm. The other thing I like about British schools is they value uh, the peer group experience as much as the teacher-student hmm. experience. Like find your peer group in there, have the conversations with other students. You'll learn as much from them yeah. as you most, will from your instructors. I'd say most of the course is probably student-initiated and peer-to-peer interaction. I love that your children talk as much as you do with such the same it's so confidence. Cute. It's really nice. <laughs> I told him don't and I didn't talk too much. To, to, to talk a lot. Don't and take the whole floor he away. has to come back <laughs> as well. So I walked through Sotheby's the other day and, uh, I, well, I got in. Anyway, I saw this, which was a joke that I heard. I'd heard this through the grapevine. And then I saw this, and I, I love it. Can you tell me a little bit about what I'm showing you or tell everyone about this Sotheby's well, incentive? It, <laughs> It was a joke. It was actually, it was a joke that was written by somebody else. And then yet another person interfered and then changed it a little bit and made a meme out of it. And then I appropriate, it's been appropriated nine times. Tell us and the joke. The joke is that Larry Gagosian came up to me the other day and told me that one of his best friends had died after a sudden illness. And the reply was, what did he have? And he said, oh, a nurse painting, a couple of Basquiat drawings and a pretty good Warhol. In a way, it's this kind of like death humor. And for me, the, the, the interesting part about this whole- Wait. Exercise. Wait, so Kenny had a piece in Sotheby's called The Larry Joke, and I think it was the most popular piece in the in the show. And it sold. Praise Carry the on. Lord. Go well, on. I mean, what was interesting to me about this, besides the fact of like, I mean, nine did I like Richard Prince, somebody else's joke that they had written, but Richard Prince called me up and he said he wrote it, which wasn't even true itself. But, but you're friends with him. Oh, yes. Yeah. I became friendly with him yeah. after this joke experience we shared. What's interesting to me is in a way, like a joke, first of all, art is not funny. Art people are generally not too funny. And it doesn't transcend in in the history that I've been involved over 30 years. There was there was never big enough audience for anyone to find anything that transpired within the confines of the art world, particularly very funny. And what this represents, a kind of joke that actually communicated to thousands of people is the fact that art has become has taken on such a bigger it's become such a bigger platform platform communicating to such a wider audience with a bigger breath than ever before there's been more growth in the past 25 years than the previous 250 years so besides the fact that this talks about authorship and originality and you know the fact is i mean you hear a lot today this is a really interesting issue where every day there's another complaint about facebook and instagram and all of these social media they're stealing all your private information but the fact is that we're giving them everything they want no one is putting a gun to your head and telling you to stop pulling your pants down on instagram all the time and showing everyone where you're taking your kids on holiday and where you're going on vacation it's bullshit because we're giving it away we're sharing all this information so the fact is i mean you have there's no Did such we used thing to sell it there's no such thing as copyright anymore, really. No. It's been, I mean, I'm working with Richard Prince to do a feature based on all of the the ramifications of all the legal actions that have been brought against him because this is really, historically, I think, one of the things that Richard will be remembered for or the historical advance or phenomenon in his work is the fact that there's, I mean, 
when you once you post something once you let once you let it go it's gone so whether it's your own artwork your writing there's just there's no control because you're just letting it go and you know what in a way it's kind of like this very non-hierarchical democratic free-for-all and so what but then how do they monetize it that is the problem we well, have to monetize it by keeping it exclusive yeah i mean i copied someone's jokes and i turned it into an art piece and i'm sold 12 copies but of are it. you gonna get sued <laughs> you know Sometimes Hopefully. I have. <laughs> That's good PR. Exactly. I've had about. I've only had three death threats and nice four one. four legal suits threatened against me since I started writing for Artnet. But aside from that, you know, I think that there's actually a legal precedent against getting sued for these types of things, and that's the kind of meat of the issue that I'll be addressing in this feature that I'm writing. What feature? Where? When? This will be in Artnet, yeah. and it's. I'm working on it now. With it'll be in the next six months or so. So I'm. But Never I will have another article music. about L.A. And we're already almost over, but I've got a question for Kai, aside from the fact that you're coming in again and curating a musical You can have set. him. Can he stay here? He can stay here. <laughs> he can stay here. Um, do you think they'll be teaching law at art school anytime soon? I feel like they already probably are <laughs> in a lot. And I feel like, because like, I guess so many people complained about this whole tuition thing. And about how all what these tuition are, thing? So just about how how high the tuition is, and will are you guaranteed to get a job or make money making art? And at the end of the day, like there is no guarantee at all, and there never will be a guarantee because if the art's not good, the art's not good, and nothing can change that, no matter how much you know about law or how much you know about the industry or anything. If it's not good, it's not good. But um, I think yeah, I think especially like I, what I experienced at Parsons, a lot of it is about the they. I mean, it was probably forty percent of the course was about the industry and what you're going to do in the industry because they're charging these extortionate fees that shouldn't be charged whatsoever. And because of that, then they have to teach the industry or else they'll just get, be getting, they'll get like grilled on the internet. And I think actually they're asking government, if anyone's on, they're on a loan, they're asking the schools to pay back the loans if the students aren't getting employed. Mm -hmm. That's a Canadian, a Vancouver school. Yeah, but at, yeah. like now there are so many art courses and these art school institutions are huge and gigantic and there's more people today studying painting and fine art and sculpture and media than I think pro than I have ever have in history. So if there are all these kids that want to be artists because everybody, you know, everyone thinks they can be an yeah. artist, you know what I mean? And not everybody, not, well, I mean, if anybody works hard enough, they no, can there's yoga teachers who think they're artists now. It's you, if you do, plan. whatever you do, if you do it well, it's art in my mind. Stop it. You're being provocative. I know it. I'm being generous. <laughs> But anyway, just to like, yeah, to, I guess, close that point, I mean, they're going to have to unless they take down the... I think it's something that's completely unnecessary and shouldn't be taught. What the, you, I think it's very important to teach the pragmatic approach and how artists, once they get out of the studio, what they how life will be on a day-to-day -day basis and what they have to do to... I, I think that's extraordinarily important, for did sure. Did they teach you how to draw? Yes. And to how to paint? Yes. How to mix color? Well, I'm, that, what's great about the slate is they kind of, if you want to learn that, you can. And But I've, I've done, like... In the start of these schools in America, I mean, that's foundation year. So they have like, in the UK, they have something called a foundation year. In yeah. America, they incorporate that into the four years instead of three years. So in foundation year, you learn, you learn sort of all the basics, like complementary colors, color theory. You learn life drawing and this and that. And then after that, it's sort of, I guess, kind of moving into your own niche within everything uh, you've learned. We've already gone over time, but can we say something to wrap this up? Like when you're coming back, anything from both of you? And do come back. Well, I, did, I forgot to mention my show, my one-person show in L.A. at Neil's Cantor Gallery, which will be concurrent with Felix. 
Where is Well, that? we could talk about that Where another that? time no, no, because no, no, I'm transitioning into an artist. <laughs> that will be at the same time, opening on the 12th of February, and it's a one-person show because really, since my writing, and I'm always incorporated 2D and short films into my written work, I've now, after the summer, had a one-person show. This will be the second one-person show I'm having. And in a way, I'm trying to move my practice away from having to deal the work of other people and try to focus more on creating my own to sell, which creates a whole other level of friction in the family art showing dynamic. I don't want to go, but we have to go. So thank you both for coming. Come again. And we'll... I can't think of anyone better to talk about the art world with than Kenny Schachter. His depth and breadth of knowledge and his enthusiasm for the art world is second to none. As I've said to people who didn't hear the first interview, Kenny makes me look like a mute, which is not an easy thing to do. Kenny Schachter, welcome to A Private View. Thank you for coming back. How are you today? Thank you for having me back. Are you sure? You haven't changed your mind. I haven't sure changed my mind. We're, we're thinking of holding you hostage, so you're here all the time co-hosting the show Did you see me. me drive by in my little green M&M car? No. Oh, I missed it. I wish I had seen it. It's the size of it. a motorcycle, and maybe uh, the fact that I parked in a motorcycle parking place will... But this is quite <laughs> interesting, because I've heard you're a car fanatic. Well, I used to be, but I've had some bad... Everyone thinks the art world is so unregulated and so nefarious, but... I've never been sued, many threats to be sued, but the only time I ever got sued in my entire life was in relationship to a classic car situation, which is still pending and the bane of my existence. And uh, Are the details interesting? No. I bought a car and then someone sent me an anonymous email that my car was a fake. It would make oh a good book God. at some point. Not your artwork, but your car. Yeah. Anyway, it's still <sighs> languishing in the courts and it's been a painful, expensive learning curve of me learning to hate cars. And the car market. The art market is tame in relationship. The last time I talked to you, we were speaking about emerging artists and moving the boundaries for emerging artists from an age category to people who are just sort of underrepresented. And this seemed to have a collective voice uh, from people who were chiming in going, finally, someone's addressed this issue, which underlying the issue has sexist uh, potentially economic class issues. If you weren't brought up by the best parents, you're not going to come into fruition of your talents until you're settled and have been able to pay for well, a life. I'm a late bloomer. So, I'm right. a late, and I'm still waiting to come into if talents, if I may have any. But art is a slow-burning process, and we live in a very fast-paced Instagram, smartphone, shortened attention span society. So... I mean, I've been doing this for 30 years in the fine art world, and I still wake up with fresh eyes every day and an appreciation of people like consensus and people like to affirm success. So the market in particular, or galleries, they all, they're always looking for the next new sensation, and sometimes the next new sensation could be 70 years old. For instance, Rose Wiley, uh, you mentioned Eva Berenson, was it? Eva Berenson. But the fact is, in ter there's also a cynical side to the art market. Well, mm, I know where you're going with this. So, I mean, the market is looking for either older African-American artists, black artists, artists of color, older women, people that art history has seemingly passed uh, without recognition or appreciation. And then it becomes a money play where everyone's looking for, in this case, like Carmen Herrera is an artist who just turned 100 or 101. And she was late discovered and always had been making art. So, yeah, I mean, art should be appreciated and discovered for 
the content of the work and not for any sinister marketing strategy. Well, on that note, brace yourself. Scott Rayburn's kind of a term that I think you know, Scott Rayburn from the art newspaper. It's called red chip art, and it applies to people like Matthew Wong, who I know you know. Uh, before, red chip art meaning Asian artists? No. Oh, I don't know what that no, means. No, I don't know what it means either. I don't and I like need the to go in already. Because you read Color you as Politics. Yes, you read Color as Politics correctly. The symbolism... Well, there's is another thing where it's like all of a sudden the world, the art world, discovered that there are people besides white guys. So anyway, there's been like a constant gold rush to exhibit the work people are ticking boxes i mean in a sense there's a benefit an upside to the fact that galleries are now opening their eyes to the fact that there are other people in the world george Bozelitz, one of the world's most famous and successful artists german artist surprise surprise um he constantly has gone on the record saying that the reason that they're that women artists don't fetch similar prices in the market in relationship to their male counterparts is because women can paint as well. And that's like a 75-year-old, canonized, historically recognized artist. And he, he continues, and he doesn't just say it like under his breath in a cocktail party. He says it in Der Spiegel and some of Germany's most well-known media outlets. It's amazing. It's shocking. And also, like, I mean, one of my favorite abstract painters who just turned 81 two weeks ago, Mary Heilman, who I did a show with when I had a project space that was designed by the conceptual artist Fido Kanchi. Her auction wow. record is only a couple hundred thousand, even though she's represented by Hauser and Wirth, the monster multi-venued international behemoth. That is a behemoth. Of behemoth, thank you. I can't pronounce. I'm, I'm still struggling with of, English, even though of, it's my like only if language. If we open that Pandora's box, we'll be here until February. Go. Anyway, if she had a penis, her work would be selling for four times the amount that it is now. And she's just an extraordinary artist. So even though things have radically transformed over the last five years, even where the floodgates have been open and um, black artists and female artists are really at the top of their game. And there's more opportunities today for for other artists besides the status quo than ever before. But they're still far from parity when you look at the 15 highest auction prices or the 15 artists that have done the best commercially over the past year, it's still going to be the majority of which are, are men. So there's a few men. things I want to talk to you about in this small amount of time. And one of them is, and we can't pick one of them just yet because there isn't enough time. Uh, I want your life story. No. I want that. <clears throat> I also want your opinion on the auction houses and the Banksy market, which you know is insane. I also would like to have your opinion on Brexit. I also want your opinion <laughs> on the difference between New York now to London and why you decided to move. Uh, I also want your opinion on what's happening with gallery spaces and private museums and Kate Blanchett opening a new art I gallery. I private museums. I know you do. There's so much that I want to talk to you about. We well, need I mean, to get I don't, a system I, where you're on yeah, monthly. So you know where start to find with me. whatever it is from those things that I talked well, about. Well, private museums are generally tax dodges. Explain and to people what they are. A private museum is when a collector, a rich collector, decides to open a quasi-public institution to present their work to, to the public. 
ostensibly it's meant to be open to the public and accessible. Now, if Do you, you have, want to name names? Well, the Marciano Museum was in Los Angeles. That's a perfect example of a museum that shouldn't exist. So the Marciano family, I don't, I'm sure they're fine people, although I think one of them may have had a few um, issues. But I'm not, I'm not going to get into our focus. Um, the Marciano Museum opened in this incredible Masonic. Did I get that yes, word right? Masonic, yes, yes. That sounds <laughs> like Los Angeles. It's Masonic. In a giant Masonic temple. So if a private museum is in a jurisdiction where there are no state-run institutions grounded in academic curatorial accrual of knowledge and information, um, let's say in China, where there's not a big network of state-run contemporary international art museums, it makes perfect sense to have uh, private museums. Although one of them I know is is started by someone who has a kind of karaoke bar slash whorehouse, but we won't get into that story either. But in Los, Ange Los Angeles? No, yeah, that's Shanghai. Try. That's oh, Shanghai. Even better. And I wrote about that, and then the person who informed me had to go into hiding, but back to L.A. Oh, so, my God, I love your John the Carey life. Um, Go on. Private museums. I know what I'm talking about. So the, there's in Los Angeles, you have the L.A. County Museum and the Museum of Contemporary Art, MOCA. Two fantastic museums. So when you – the art world, the world works on a zero-sum economic basis where, let's say, the opportunities for one artist could be at the expense of another artist. When a museum, a great museum, like the Contemporary Art Museum in Chicago – um, when they decide to show Virgil Abloh, who's a famous fashion designer slash DJ slash furniture designer. I'm missing a few slashes. Yeah. <laughs> when a great museum gives over their space to a fashion designer or when Tom Krenz, who used to run the Guggenheim, gives over his museum to motorcycles, which he loves, or fashion, Giorgio Armani, who are paying the bills, that means artists can't show during that month. In one of the Museums have only a small handful of shows a year. And in, there's only a, a hand, there's only a handful of audience, even though it's larger than sports events that patronize museums. So if there's a museum like the Marciano Museum, they started guest jeans and they started collecting maybe 10, 15 years ago. So it's really like it's curatorship without being grounded in um, academics and the study and connoisseurship of art. So anyway, if there's a Marciano Museum, which I've been to myself before it closed, um, that means your time is only so much. So you're not, you oftentimes people will go see the Marciano museum instead of LACMA or MOCA, the two state run institutions that have built a constituency over decades and painstakingly raised money to create the resources to have a museum in Los Angeles. Los Angeles is a great town that's chock-a-block full with galleries and great state public institutions. Why do, and there's another museum, Eli Broad, and he's a very rich man who is in the insurance and home business. Uh, Great collector. Yeah, no, he's not. He, his collection is, an, is a Sotheby's and Christie's night sale collection. So it's a box ticking collection with a lot of art acquired at very high profile public auctions. So... If he didn't open his own museum, and he has some great pieces in it, if he didn't open his own museum, he would have contributed all that art, donated it to one of the two museums in town. Los Angeles does not need a private museum. There were 75 employees at the Marciano Museum, and last year they decided to unionize so they would not be um, – to because they were being paid subpar uh, wages. And then yeah. in their effort to unionize, the family just turned around and shut the museum. And, I mean, they're working with – like I would call – 
the collection is more comprised, uh, well, put together by an art advisor than, you Who's know. Who's the advisor? Oh, I don't know. It's been probably a series of them. But they closed, and now Gagosian took over the building. I would much rather have Gagosian take over this fabulous building because he's very transparent. And Gagosian has done, I mean, we've had a hate-love, love-hate relationship, but he's one of the... He, form he's an incredible art dealer and he's done incredible he kept john richardson the foremost preeminent picasso scholar on the payroll for 10 years even though john richardson may have done three or four shows because to to make a show of the quality that of picasso that they staged three or four of them in the gallery over the years takes many years and is very difficult to get loans from people and in any event museums are so cash strapped for money I'd rather see a gallery which is transparent in their commercial um, ambitions than one of these pseudo-fake museums. So anyway, if you know when the Rubels first started a museum in Miami, their own museum, there were no there were no major museums for contemporary art. The problem is with with private museums are that you know they buy and sell regularly, and they often engage in this. They're just collectors clothed in this kind of pseudo institution. So and as a result, they get to deduct the money for rent, for the upkeep of their collection, for insurance, for transportation. And there's one in Maryland, in the suburbs somewhere, the Rails Museum, Mitch Rails, who's a hedge funder, and his wife, I think Emily. Anyway, they're known to be extraordinary collectors, but the museum is like, you need to make an appointment. It's completely inaccessible right. geographically. So these things the benefits in terms of like depriving taxpayers of more money, I would say do not outweigh the benefit of having an institution like that when there are great museums in the area of Maryland, Virginia, and Washington, D.C. So I'm going to roll it back, and I'm going to suggest that you and I both started in the art world when it was for geeks in black uh, with notebooks, moleskin notebooks, who maybe smoked outside. When did these finance people and... Well, there's been there's been start an, muscling their way. There's into been the more art world. growth, and what's the effect? There's been more growth financially in our world in the last twenty years than the previous two hundred years, and people think that art and money as bedfellows is a recent phenomenon. But Rembrandt was so obsessed with money. There's a book called Rembrandt's Enterprise by Svetlana Alpers, who's a Columbia scholar professor, and he was so obsessed with money. His studio assistants painted coins on the floor in an effort to get him to bend over to pick them up and pocket them. And he also had the biggest house in Amsterdam, collected, I mean, it it almost sounds like Damien Hirst, who can't paint like Rembrandt, but he's made some extraordinary art in his life. And anyway, so Rembrandt ended up going bankrupt during an economic downturn, and in the end of his life couldn't even accept commissions in his own name because his wages were garnished. Anyway, art and money have always been in bed together, but the kind of monetization of art has exploded because of a number of reasons, mainly like, uh, well, some very high-profile prices fetched at auction. Also, art has become kind of imbued with social cachet and also things like free ports where you can store your art in this kind of autonomous city-state of you don't have to pay VAT or sales tax when you buy art and you keep it in one of these state-sanctioned warehouses. Stop there. No. Yes. <laughs> because what, please, because what I 
want to ask you is, is this what people would say is a gateway for finance people to Drug, move things money around? Laundering and, and does it compromise and the quality of culture that we're putting out? You Has know, the art world... The world is the world and the art world reflects nothing. I mean, I'm right, very laissez-faire nice. and very open-ended. And I think if people get into art for money, first of all, someone once said in relationship to the car industry... Uh, if you want to make a small fortune in the automotive industry, start with the large one. And a lot of the people who get into art simply to make money end up losing money. Although Gagosian wanted, he gets all, he gets horny by doing a big deal. But he's a complicated character. He's and great, he was mentored yeah. by a Castelli. There's a lot no, going he, on I mean, there. He, or he mythologized he, that. No, it's true. They worked together and that was just a brilliant strategic alliance uh, where they both derived benefits from it but that's yet another story anyway art has become because of free ports where you can trade art without paying any taxes so it reduces the whole the cost and there's a lot of financing now on collections because there's a trillion dollars of art in circulation but art of course um does not create any income but now you're able to finance off of it and interest rates are so low anyway and also because of greater transparency in the market and the increase in the breadth of the market due to things like social media. And anyway, so there's a lot of variables, a perfect storm that have contributed to art being treated more like um, a financial asset. And it's been um, subsequently uh, monetized to an extent that it never has been. And also you have prices like the Prince of Saudi Arabia paying $450 million for Leonardo da Vinci to whitewash his murderous reputation and he didn't. If I was a journalist in Saudi Arabia, I would be turned into sushi roll. But I don't. And so, <laughs> on that note, uh, I know that you've been around long enough to know when Banksy pieces were going for a few hundred quid, and pest control didn't exist. This isn't something you're going to want to talk about. I but I want, you to Why talk about. I want you to talk about what it? is going on with an edition of six hundred. Uh, Prince selling for hundreds of thousands of pounds each with bomb hugger and the napalm and just the Banksy piece. I mean, I we were working with Banksy in the 2000s. These pieces weren't expensive. There was no pest control. Good for him. Uh, no, no, no. I but mean, what is some... going on with the auction houses? Because they Nothing. seem to have a private museum. He seems to have a private museum at Sotheby's. Well, he, he consigns things directly to Sotheby's, which again... If he doesn't exist, how new. can he consign things? I mean, things? David Hammond's one of the great conceptual artists in the world today. Uh, he's been doing that. I mean, Hogarth had a sale of his own worth work at auction in the late 1700s or I may get my dates wrong but no but I like what you're saying you're saying event, they've cut out the middleman oh, and listen, it's very Banksy interesting Banksy is a good artist and yeah, I think he's really artist. funny I there are certain too. other yeah. street artists that you can relate him to one of which is cause and cause work I just I despise because it's conceptually vacuous but there's also Daumier who you could relate. Yeah, of course, yes. But I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, like, Banksy, I think, good for him. So I mean, he's I. extraordinarily clever, and I think he, I really appreciate his sense of humor. I don't like everything he did. Like, I mean, he... I just think he's, you know, the shredding, the painting shredding at the end of auction. I tried to buy the painting immediately after it was shredded from Sotheby's, and I'm sh I would tend to think that Sotheby's was in on <laughs> the spectacle. But in any event, but I mean, yeah. why I mean, are pe people... There was a documentary made. Of course yeah, they People are sheep. 
in the art world and there's a herd mentality that drives prices. When it's $5,000, nobody cares. When it's 50,000, people start to whisper. And when it's a half a million, everybody wants one. So when Banksy achieves a high price at auction, then everyone comes out of the woodwork and the prices escalate. That's just human nature. So what is more that about Banksy. people applauding the price and, and not also, the like, art? And also, everyone sort of knows who Banksy is. Yes. He's like Robin Gunderson, and it's been written about in from the Daily Mail. When I used to live. Whatever. Gotcha. Whatever. <laughs> who did I call what? Whatever. <laughs> anyway, out. what I'm saying <laughs> is that it's like Santa Claus. Nobody <laughs> wants, like, it. it's so, it's impossible. Anonymity in the day and age of social media is next to impossible. Everyone's walking around with their pants down. Everyone's listening to your conversations, reading, bugging your phone. And I mean, every time they say, Steve Wozniak, one of the f- founders of Apple, he said, on record that every time you download an app, your entire phone, the security of your phone is breached. But anyway... So where does this leave the art world in terms of brain implants and perfect. artificial... The more transparency, intri- the more transparency right. in the art world, the better. I love it. I, so anyway, I. Banksy is funny and he's clever and he's a good artist. What I didn't like, I mean, sometimes there's a lot of hypocrisy in the art world and that's really what I rail against and I'm guilty of it myself. I'm far from a little perfect bunny. Yeah, but you happily self-deprecate everything yeah. about yourself and admit to being human. What I didn't like don't. about Banksy Go. was like he bought a refugee boat oh, and yeah, the boat was like nice. an ancient boat and he decided to save all the immigrants a- fleeing from, you know, oppressed countries and working their way towards the West to seek opportunities. And it's a great gesture, but... Not um, thought out very well. But then he bought an old boat and then he had, of course plaster one of his own artworks on the boat so already it's like you know when people i there's no such thing as altruism probably and a lot of donations are like there's the wing of the hospital by mr and mrs blah and if he really wanted to help people he would just get a boat one that preferably worked better than his did but so many people went on the boat when it first went to sea that it it malfunctioned but then he had a gigantic Banksy plastered on the side of it. So, I mean, if you want to do something, which is an extraordinary gesture of great charity and not only just like putting your money where your mouth is, but again, like he had to brand the boat with his artwork. So then I made a video in our piece where I was drowning in the sea and a boat came by festooned with cause pieces. And I just said, no, thanks and drowned that I'd rather drown than get aboard the cause rescue boat but also i'm going to say something else which is terrible um like back to opportunities for black artists and how the market is changing and david zwerner who doesn't have many black artists at all um a director except for um kerry james marshall who is is the market has a world record for a black artist at over $20 million, an extraordinary paint. I mean, he's a I painter. Love him. Zaha so Hadid sweet. hated to be called an Arab female architect. And I just think art should be art, and we shouldn't have to assign this kind of nomenclature a black artist, a white artist, a women artist, a trans artist, a they artist, a this or that. I don't want to get myself and into trouble. And we wouldn't have had to do it. Nom- we wouldn't then, have had to do it. Were David, they not excluded? Yeah, that's true. But so David, we had to do yeah, it because they were But David Zwerner, what he thinks is like a do-gooder gesture, is opening a black gallery. So, oh, dear. Yeah, oh, dear is right. So he hired a black director, and she uh, and I would presume that she has some proprietary interest in the company but nevertheless like for a white german to be opening a black gallery is just has the worst 
for me. I mean, first of all, if he wanted to do something helpful, it's just like Banksy. Why not just quietly uh, finance the gallery as a as as an, an investor without going on record? Because he's trying to get all the accolades of being this open minded, um, equanimous. Um, so is your some criticism lessons. of, I think my, of my, ego, I just think people should do egos? stuff. I mean, I've been, I, when I was curating shows in the nineties, I would just always, I, I, I mean, it would have been so easy to have 10 guys in the show, but I would never do that. I mean, because I I've always been someone who looks to be fair in, in any way that I can. I tried to be. And how did you get, I always just put, I always made an effort without publicizing it or making reference to it. Um, that I would just include different artists. Of but different it isn't even an effort ethnic... with you. It is the way you are. Well, yeah, You're well, inclusive. Just, You're inclusive. Yes, and I think being inclusive me, and mentoring people. people and being amenable towards helping people in any way I can, gives, I get as much satisfaction to teaching and writing and making art the same way that someone like Gagosian gets off making a sale for $10 million. I mean, that does He's nothing flawless. for me. Have you yeah. seen him on the sales floor? He's I like had dinner a with him after like. Rena. I, mean, I was after focused. like after being enemies, frenemies, and he used to hate me. I once did an article where somebody quit the the company Goldman Sachs, and they wrote an op ed article um, why they left why they left Goldman Sachs, and it was like a whiny on. And I think I, was gonna, I know the person. I was going to relate it to the culture. He was saying that the culture of investment banking has changed; that the investment banks have become they're they're engaging in proprietary trading at the expense of their relationships with their clients. So my point was to, um, I was going to write an article and say the art dealing art galleries used to nurture relationships; they would build collections organically, and the collections would be bequeathed to subsequent generations. And then I realized like art dealers are often trading for their own account and the people that suffer are the clients and the art market, art dealers generate our act, behave like an Egyptian sculpture with both hands outstanded in opposite directions doing this dance. And they're getting paid from the buyer and the seller and neither, neither of whom are aware of this kind of agency relationship between both parties. Anyway, so I took this article and I was going to relate it, now. but it was a really long article. And I ended up just every time it said, Goldman Sachs, I substituted Gagosian. And every time it said like a derivative, I said selling an unwieldy uh, Jason Rhodes or Mike Kelly sculpture. And I just did this. And then it was picked up by a newsletter. And then it went viral, a couple of hundred thousand hits. And to this day, like nine years later, I still get stopped in the street of people telling me that I inspired them to quit their job and move on. So Kenny, if you don't know, and I'm sure you all know, covers the universe. And so if I read a book and see Kenny's name and I photograph it and send it to Kenny, he doesn't always know about it because everyone refers to the things that Kenny says. Well, you're says being, about you're the, being very world. generous. When is there a documentary coming out about your <laughs> life and how the art world saved you, which is something that you say a lot yeah. or occasionally? I mean, we spoke, we you, spoke about... Um, Inigo Philbrick, and you pronounced his name wildly and correctly, I might add. I did it you know, just don't to edit that get a rise out, out of Inigo, you. I think you called him. Are we doing this? We're doing this. Okay. You You were hanging out with Made in what Chelsea? I am, what I am saying is... Um, <laughs> and you have the nerve to criticize me? I'm not criticizing uh, you. I'm loving you in my I own like it. Same. fashion. Same. Yeah. Anyway, so um, I, was a, I wrote an article about this young person who stole an awful lot of money from many rich people, and... He, I wouldn't care if he just stole money from me because we had a good friendship beforehand and a relationship. 
But then everybody he, take note. I introduced him to some people and he stole money from them. And oh. the way he rationalized it really incensed me. And I wrote this article about the nature of our relationship and his behavior, a lot of which was I was the only one privy to it. And I wrote an article in New York Magazine. It got picked up in the um, Saturday Magazine section of the Times. And I had calls from 10 plus movie companies and producers who wanted to do both a documentary and a scripted movie. And I was thinking long and hard about it. And I decided, well, I had a couple of calls, one of whom was interesting, who was a producer of, um, he produced the Fire Festival on Netflix and was a producer of the Tiger King documentary. And he had gone to art school. And over the course of our discussions, I made a very clear decision that I was not going to spend six, six months of my life going on and on about someone who robbed me. And he represented all the greed and the bad part of the art world. But I wanted to tell the story that the art world gives me hope, fills me with passion, imbues me with love. And I was able to basically shift this documentary around to like the art world through my eyes and through my relationships. After speaking to you, I'm going to see Tracy Edmonds show at YQ. We got permission to open the show it's and to speak to her. By and the I've, way, yeah. if you haven't seen it. No, I have not. So anyway, Did so sure, there's a lot of shit that goes on in the art world and a lot of people are screwing each other. I always say in the art world, they stab you in the front and then you have dinner with them because you can't afford to alienate someone you could do another deal with. And I agree. But it's it's just a bell's curve of morality and ethics in the world. And the art world is no different. It reflects everything socially, politically, economically, and psychologically in the world. So I think there's a lot of good and art is literally helps me and helps me get up in the morning now that I quit drinking and doing drugs. I rely on art to basically sustain me couple of things. I can't imagine you getting up in the morning because I can't imagine you going to bed, which is fine. But uh, with that said, I think I agree entirely with what you said. <laughs> How do we do this on a regular basis? Because the listeners well, we love can, it. We can do it from New York. We yeah, can figure we can out your insomnia I'll be happy schedule. to come like once, once a week, whenever. I yeah, can get up at any Korsh time. Yeah, and I can absolutely arrange that. And I it would be an honor. I teach all the time. I mentor all the time. And it means a lot to me to give people I don't think that I'm making people like affirm the worst parts of the art world I think I'm inspiring people to just see through it all and to see that you know like I said I love art and art fills me with hope every time I wake up in the morning and the complexities are part of it Kenny Schachter thank you for joining a private view Korsh at homie thank you for producing uh, we've reached the end but you heard the commitment Kenny's coming on regularly thank you for listening thank you Soho Radio goodbye for now see you Friday I hope you enjoyed listening to the edited version of three shows. Uh, Kenny Schachter on a Private View from the 15th of January, 2021. Kenny Schachter on the Private View from the 19th of January, 2021. And the special tribute to Kai Schachter that we played with Kenny's Blessing from the 5th of February, 2019. The music for this podcast was produced by Korshid Homie.